Well, good morning. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to Judges, book of Judges, chapter 17. We'll be in chapter 17 and 18 this morning. I bring you greetings from your brothers and sisters in Meridianville, Alabama. It's a delight to be able to come and um, preach here, and I'm truly be able to, uh, blessed to be able to do it twice in a row now, which is fun. Uh, last week, we spoke of the Old Testament in general from Luke 24, uh, specifically in verses 44 through 45, and I don't think I mentioned this, but that passage I preached on last week is the first memory passage uh, my ninth graders have to learn. So this past Friday, uh, we had our quiz, and I got to hear it over and over again um, in varying degrees of accuracy, but they did all right. They did okay. So it was, it was a joy. It's been on my heart for a while, and uh, been hearing it a lot. But this week, this morning, I want to focus on an Old Testament story and learn from it, one particular one, both practical lessons on how to follow God and to see Jesus in it. This is one of my favorite Old Testament stories, which might seem a little odd, really. My, Micah and the Levite is one of your favorite stories, and yeah, it is. Uh, while there are many wonderful and good stories in the Old Testament, this story in particular has helped shape my thinking of God and who God is, my relationship to Him more deeply and more profoundly than uh, almost any other. It was the catalyst that really helped form my thinking and dealing with grief and loss. It gives shape to what I hope for in my ministry and my dreams and pastoral work. It acts as a constant reminder of what I am to be about and the dangers and pitfalls that abound. And so I want to share some of that with you this morning. As we read through it, there's a, a bit of, it's a bit of a long story, so what I'm going to do this morning is I'm going to read all of chapter 17, and I'm going to summarize Judges 18, 1 through 16, and read verses 17 through 20, and then summarize the rest of 18 just to, to help us get through all this, because it, it, it is a chunky story. So I'm going to pick up Judges 17, and we'll read through it together. Hear now the word of the Lord. There was a man of the hill country of Ephraim whose name was Micah, and he said to his mother, the 1,100 pieces of silver that were taken from you, about which you uttered a curse, and also spoke it in my ears, behold, the silver is with me. I took it. And his mother said, blessed be my son by the Lord. And he restored the 1,100 pieces of silver to his mother, and his mother said, I dedicate the silver to the Lord from my hand for my son to make a carved image and a metal image. Now, therefore, I will restore it to you. So when he restored the money to his mother, his mother took 200 pieces of silver and gave it to a silversmith who made it into a carved image and a metal image, and it was in the house of Micah. And the man Micah had a shrine, and he made an ephod and household gods and ordained one of his sons who became his priest. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Now, there was a young man of Bethlehem in Judah, the family of Judah, who was a Levite, and he sojourned there. And the man departed from the town of Bethlehem in Judah to sojourn where he could find a place. And as he journeyed, he came to the hill country of Ephraim to the house of Micah. And Micah said to him, where do you come from? And he said to him, I'm a Levite of Bethlehem in Judah. And I'm going to sojourn where I may find a place. And Micah said to him, stay with me and be to me a father and a priest. And I will give you ten pieces of silver a year and a suit of clothes and your living. And the Levite went in. And the Levite was content to dwell with the man, and the young man became to him like one of his sons. And Micah ordained the Levite, and the young man became his priest and was in the house of Micah. Then Micah said, Now I know that the Lord will prosper me because I have a Levite as a priest. And then in chapter 18, like I said, I'm going to summarize it down to verse 16. 
What happens is the tribe of Dan comes along, and they had been given an inheritance by God in a part of the land and had, uh, had not uh, taken it, not uh, driven out the enemies. And so they were looking for a place that was easier for them to get. And so they're looking around Micah's house, and they go by Micah's house, and they hear the voice of the young Levite. They recognize his accent as being from Bethlehem, kind of how we might understand a southern accent in New York. And they say, what are you doing here? And Micah tells them all about Micah and Micah's shrine and his job. And uh, he blesses these five spies who are going to search out for a place for the tribe and tells them to go. God's going to be with you. And then the tribes, uh, the spies go and they find a city and they go back and they get their war band and they're all going back to this city. And then we pick up in verse uh, 17 as this whole war band now is passing by Micah's house. Verse 17, and the five men who had gone to scatter out the land went up and entered and took the carved image, the ephod, the household gods, and the metal image, while the priest stood by the entrance of the gate with the 600 men armed with weapons of war. And when these went into Micah's house and took the carved image, the ephod, and the household gods, and the metal image, the priest said to them, what are you doing? And they said to him, keep quiet, put your hand on your mouth, and come with us, and be to us a father and a priest. Is it better for you to be priest of the house of one man? Or to be a a priest to a tribe and clan in Israel. And the priest's heart was glad. He took the ephod and the household gods and the carved image and went along with the people. And then just finishing up this story, what happens is that Micah sees all these people taking his stuff. He comes out with some of his family to try to fight them. And they say to Micah, go home before we kill you and all your family. Micah runs can't take them on. They go on, destroy the city, and set up the carved image and the priest. And at the very end, we learn that this Levite is actually uh, Moses's grandson. But we're going to dive into this together. The grass withers, the flower falls, but the word of the Lord abides forever. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you are a God who speaks to us, who loves us, who's not left us without a testament and a, and a light for our path. We pray that you would be with us as we consider that your spirit would be at work convicting us of sin, encouraging us in righteousness, helping us to hear what you have for us. We pray that you'd be with us. In Jesus' name, amen. So the book of Judges, just as a little context, picks up after Joshua has died and details the story of Israel between Joshua and Saul when there was no king or central ruler in the nation. God had delivered his people from the Egyptians, showing faithfulness to his promises to Abraham. Uh, God had given them his law and commandments, telling them exactly what he required of them to be his people. Um, God had led them to the promised land and with a mighty hand had driven out most of the nations before them and given them supernatural victory in the conquest. And now after decades and hundreds of years of unending examples and reminders of God's faithfulness and goodness and worthiness, God's people are left wondering, what's next? What's next? There might be a sense of kinship with them here today. Well, thankfully, Scott hasn't died. Uh, And while I hope Redeemer's next pastor wouldn't be identified with the character of King Saul, hopefully... (laughs) Nonetheless, there might be a feeling of similarity and kinship with the Israelites in this time, a sense of chaos, a sense of worry, a sense of wildness, disorder. It's a vulnerable time 
a dangerous time. And what we have in the book of Judges should serve as a stark warning to us all the time, but especially now. After Joshua's death, the people quickly abandoned the Lord, turning to other gods and doing what is right in their own eyes. The book of Judges is marked by a cycle of idolatry and judgment, repentance and salvation by the hand of a judge. And God continually shows his compassion and justice, but the people continue to abandon the covenant he had made with them at Sinai. Most of the stories of the book of Judges deal with the big epic stories of the time, battles and wars and generals. Uh, But here at the very end of Judges, we have two smaller scale stories. They kind of give us a snapshot of what normal life was like in this time of sin and rebellion. We often like to think of the Old Testament as God speaking all the time and big, crazy, miraculous events happening all the time, and there's definitely that. But more often, it was very similar to our own lives, going about our day, working, having a family, doing normal things. And we see that here in the story of Micah and the Levite. Our passage is one of these small snapshots that give us some insight and some of the dangers that are ever-present, but especially in times without a leader. And it also serves as an encouragement to seek a better path, a reminder that we are not truly leaderless. My theme this morning is simple. It's that God is not the means to our own ends. God is not the means to our own ends. That's what I think this passage is ultimately about and I think we'll see that as we look at the problem of pragmatism, the, promise, or the purpose of worship, and the promise of a king. The problem of pragmatism, the purpose of worship, and the promise of a king. Firstly, let's consider the problem of pragmatism. This is, a, this is really a story about pragmatism, and it's everywhere in the story. I, I originally had this point called the prevalence of pragmatism because we see it all over the story. I don't know if you noticed as we were reading through it, but everyone in this story is awful. <laughs> everyone. We like our stories to have a hero, to have a, an example to follow, a good guy with, you know, some, some character flaws, some flaws to overcome, but generally a good person who we can root for. And this story has none of that. We're introduced to the main character, <laughs> Micah, first. And the very first line of dialogue from Micah is him confessing that he's stolen 1,100 pieces of silver from his mom. Um, and this isn't Micah, you know, taking a 20 that his mom had left lying around. This is a, a serious theft. I mean, I don't know how much this would have equated to at the time, but we can put it into our own context and think about, you can buy a, a, a gold or a silver coin for about 20 or $30. So you're looking at tens of thousands of dollars, thousands at least. Micah's taken a huge amount of money from his mom. And he's, we see that he's not telling her this, confessing this, because he's repenting and realizing, I shouldn't have done that. It's because she's been complaining, and he's tired of her complaining about it. And we see her, his mom is no saint either. Uh, rather than being upset with her son, rather than rebuking him, uh, she praises him for restoring the silver to her. I don't know if any of you have ever stolen from your mom. Uh, I have when I was a child, and I very much remember this was not her reaction. <laughs> she loved me. She, she was happy. I told her and confessed, but I still got spanking. And Micah should have restored the silver, but we see his mom doesn't take sin seriously. 
She's permissive and passive. She tolerates evil and sin in her son. And to top all of that off, she takes the silver and she gets it made into a carved image and a metal image. We know that she knows Yahweh. She uses his name when you see the Lord in all caps. It's uh, uh, standing for Yahweh, God's covenant name. She said, I dedicate the silver to Yahweh. Blessed be my son by Yahweh. She knows the God of Israel. She uses his name, but she's either ignorant of the law concerning idolatry and the creation of images, the second commandment, or more likely giving her permissiveness of Micah's sin and the fact that everyone's doing what's right in their own eyes. She just doesn't care. She's just doing what she wants to do, God's commandments and laws notwithstanding. So Micah's no good. Micah's mom's no good. And we see Micah's even worse than we originally think. We already know he doesn't care about stealing a huge sum of money from his mom, breaking the eighth and fifth commandments. But he goes along with us idolatry and makes it even worse. He makes his own version of a priest's garments, uniform, and ephod. He makes his own household gods, his own idols, not just an idol of you know, Yahweh, but other gods, pagan gods. And even ordains one of his sons to act as his priest. Micah sets up his own little backyard tabernacle, in a sense. He's treating worship like an all-you-can-eat buffet, you know, getting a little Baal worship, a little Yahweh worship, a little Asherah worship, and thinks, this is good. This is great, because this is what I want. This suits my taste. This is right in my own eyes. We know Micah knows God's commandments, because in a little bit he's going to get excited uh, about the idea of having a Levite as a priest, which is what God commands. The tribe of Levite are to be the priests. So he knows what he's doing totally goes against God's commands, but he doesn't care. God had commanded they weren't to make images or worship idols, but Micah does. He'd commanded they were to offer sacrifices and worship at the tabernacle, but Micah sets up his own shrine. And God had commanded the Levites were to be priests, but Micah ordains his son an Ephraimite as his priest. Micah's no good. And then we get introduced to the next major character, the Levite, who also is just a really great guy. Really, really wonderful person here. Uh, we learn at the end of the story that, as I mentioned earlier, this is actually Moses' grandson. And it's meant to be a powerful revelation. The author waits until we see how awful and how terrible this guy is before saying, by the way, this is Moses' grandson. That's how bad things have gotten, that even the grandson of the great and godly Moses is diving into all this awfulness. We see he's left Bethlehem. He's seeking a place for himself. Now, the Levites were given lands and tithes and support by the people of Israel so they could focus on learning the law, teaching the people, caring for the people's spiritual needs. They would have had a stipend place. But this Levite has left his normal place because he's trying to find a place for himself. He's not content with what God had provided for him. He's trying to see if he could do better than God had provided him with. He's malcontent, greedy, seeking acclaim. He comes to Micah and this abominable mixture of idols and uh, Yahweh worship and gross violation of the law, which he as a Levite would have been schooled in. And instead of reprimanding or correcting Micah, once an offer of 10 pieces of silver and a change of clothes is on the table, he's quite happy 
to abandon God's commands and go along with this. He's content, Judges tells us. He wanted wealth and prestige, and now he has it here, and he's happy to take the Lord's name in his mouth while, and offer pronouncements as a priest while engaged in all this awfulness. There's a bit of irony as Micah is more than happy to hire this Levite to be his priest because Micah says, now he knows that the Lord will do him good because he has a Levite as a priest. He stupidly thinks this will make his blasphemous and idolatry work because now he can whitewash it with a a veneer of legitimacy. But it's ironic because it's actually through the Levite that Micah's whole racket comes crashing down. It's the people of Dan hear the Levite's accent. And it's through him that they learn of the silver image and this, all these household gods and this little shrine that Micah's made. It's the Levite who ends up costing Micah all this stuff. And despite the Levite being content to dwell with Micah, we notice how quickly he was content to leave Micah and to adjust himself to the idea of a new position with the tribe of Dan. As soon as he could rationalize that, you know, it is better to serve a whole tribe than one family. I could minister to so many more people. I could be, get so much more money. I could do so much more. He abandoned Micah, even going so far as to help the Danites plunder Micah's temple. And then, of course, there's the Danites who had been given lands by God, but it was too hard. They couldn't drive out the enemies. They didn't want to do the hard things God had called them to do, and so they leave it. It's unsuitable to their liking, and they're trying to find some place better in their eyes to, to settle down in, ignoring what God had given them. Everyone in this story is really and truly awful. There's no hero here. But why are they awful? Why are, what's the root of all this in this story? Why are they doing what they're doing? In verse 6, the author gives us the root of all this. In verse 6, he says, In those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. That's the theme of this whole story. Everyone's doing what's right to them. The people are defining what is right and wrong by, uh, by their own parameters and their own judgments. They are taking upon themselves the position of arbiters of right and wrong. And how do they determine what's right or wrong? Well, the guiding principle and philosophy that they use to determine what's right and wrong is pragmatism. Will it get me what I want? Does it work? Does it accomplish my goals? And it's good and right. Michael wants to have a little chapel, and he wants to have a priest, and he wants to have prayer. He wants a good life. He wants the Lord to bless him, to do him good. And so he does all this stuff. The Levite wants to make his own way. He wants a good paycheck. He wants to make his mark on the world. He wants prestige. He wants to use God as a way to get in, so he does. The Danites want an easy life. They want to avoid hard things. They want a home. And so they seek out whatever's going to lead them to that, the quickest, the easiest. They desire, and so whatever will bring about these desires is good and right. We see pragmatism all over in the book of Judges. It's kind of the guiding philosophy of this time, and in many ways, the guiding principle and philosophy of our time as well. 
Think of all the evil and wickedness in our world today and in our own hearts and see how pragmatic it really is. You think of, go through sin, right? Why wouldn't you engage in gluttony? Don't you want to enjoy good food and eat all you want and satisfy every craving? Just makes sense. Why would you honor your parents? Don't you want freedom and autonomy? Don't they get in your way and annoy you, put constraints on you? They get in the way of what you really want. So why wouldn't you dishonor them? Why would you rest on the Lord's day? Don't you know there's so much to get done? And don't you need more money, more stuff, more time, more rest? Why would you stay faithful to your spouse? Don't you want affirmation and excitement and pleasure, whatever it is? Why would you tell the truth? Don't you want to please people, to avoid judgment, to get ahead in life? Don't you want things? Don't you want a good life? So why don't you do what it takes to get it? I want, I want, I want, whatever it might be. We want things, and sin promises a quick and easy way to get what we ultimately want. So the pragmatic choice is to sin, to ignore God's commands and laws and precepts. They just get in the way of what we truly want. Now, as Christians, or those who profess to be Christians, we we might know better, just like Micah and the Levite. We We might know we shouldn't go wholesale into awful and terrible things to get what we want. But oftentimes, maybe if we could just cover over our sin and pragmatism with a veneer of obedience, we'll be okay. For say we're serving God, surely he'd be okay with a few idols in the shrine out back. We're just doing our best. Sure, God tells us how to run the church and how to live. He gives us laws and principles to guide us, but they're not getting us what we really want. It's not reaching our ends, whatever that might be. So let's use different means. Let's use cheap tactics. Let's do different things. Let's keep it close enough to avoid seeming idolatrous, right? I'm not a glutton. I'm just enjoying the good gifts God gives me of food. I'm not a gossip. I'm just sharing prayer requests. I'm not a coward or ashamed of the gospel. I'm just trying to be all things to all people and not offend. I'm not whatever it is. We want what we shouldn't. We want gluttony, gossiping. We want to be loved by people be people pleasers, whatever it might be we want. And so we take and eat the fruit of sin because it promises us the quickest and easiest path to what we truly want. And as Christians, all too often we make it holy. We, we whitewash it. Pragmatism is all over this story and all over our hearts. Michael wants, the Levite wants, the Danites want, and we want. And so we take the pragmatic path and do what's right in our own eyes. But though it's easy and quick, it's the wrong path as we consider what it means to worship the Lord in and with our lives. We know this is the wrong path. The whole point of the story is that this is wrong. Don't do this. Don't be like these people because they're awful people. But what is the right path? What is the purpose of worship? Not just worship in the sense of Sunday morning, all this, but in the sense of following 
God, serving Him, loving Him. Why do we serve God? One of the chief symptoms of pragmatism in this story and in our own lives often is that these people are not truly serving God, but rather they're using God as a means to an end. None of them care about God and His commands and His worthiness and His glory. They love Him about as much as we might love a vending machine that gives us the snack we really want. Or as much as I love the drill that helps me put together a bookshelf. Yeah, it's nice, it's handy, but at the end of the day, its only value was in helping me achieve what I want. And God only had value and authority to the people in this story in so much as he could get them what they really wanted. And all too often we treat God the same way. And the question for us this morning, the key question is, why do we follow God? Why do you follow God? Why did you get up this morning and come here? Why do we come to God? For blessing? For Him to do us good, as Micah says? For Him to give us a happy and whole life full of good things? For health? For family? For love? For joy? For peace? For respect? For aspirations? For importance? For heaven? For not going to hell? You hear the commonality in all those responses is for. We come to God for fill in the blank, whatever it is. And when we answer in these ways, God is a means to an end. And what you really want isn't God, but whatever you fill in that blank with. Whatever sits at the end of why do you worship God for what? That's your God. And Yahweh just happens to be a convenient tool to reach it. Now, I hope we'd never say, I worship peace, I worship health, I worship a fulfilling life, and God's just my tool to get it, at least not out loud. But we see what our God truly is when we don't get the things that we want. When illness crops up, when our dreams are threatened, when our hopes are dashed, when our way is impeded. What happens when we don't get what we want? What will you do when the things you truly love are taken from you? Your health, your friends, your joy, your family, your wife, your very life. Do you love these things more than God? Then you will hate God because he has failed to get you what you actually want. What happens to a tool that doesn't work? When disaster strikes and God isn't giving, giving us what we want, well, it's time for a different tool. Maybe you throw them away and abandon the faith. We see that happen all too often. When people aren't given what they actually want, they turn away and leave God. Maybe you just put them on a shelf and put your faith in something else until a little later when he might be more useful and more valuable. Maybe you just abandon whatever it is he's calling you to and has you going through since it's obviously not working. That's just good pragmatism. If it's not working... Stop doing it. But it's poison for the Christian life. Why do we follow God? There's only one reason for us to come to Christ, to follow Him. And that's because He deserves the worship and adoration and obedience of our hearts because He is worthy of it. He's not the means to an end. He is the end. We don't come to God. We don't follow God for fill in the blank. We come to God for God. 
We follow God for God. We obey because he is who he is. Because he's worthy in and of himself, regardless of whether that he does us good or slays us. And in that, as a byproduct, we get peace and heaven and joy and all sorts of other things. But they are the the wrapping paper around the inexpressible gift that is him. And this is the mindset of the great men and women of Scripture. Micah and the Levites and the Danites are all awful, but when we look at actual heroes, actual good examples, we see this. This is the mindset of Job, who after losing his family, his wealth, his health, and everything said, though God slay me, yet I will hope in him. The Lord is given, the Lord is taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. This is the mindset of Habakkuk, who not only said, but sang, though the fig trees should not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, the produce of the olive fail, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God the Lord is my strength. This is the mindset of the, the psalmist who said, my soul thirsts for God. My tears have been my food day and night. Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me, hoping God? For I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. Of course, this is the mindset of our Lord, Jesus, who prayed in the garden of Gethsemane, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. And going a little further, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, my father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. Not as I will, not my desires, my wants, my ends, your will be done. Even though it costs me my life. Even though I'm dying for people who hate you and rebel against you and use you, your will be done. We don't serve God for our ends, but because he's worthy of us. Because he is God and there is no other. The purpose of worship, of following God, of serving Him is not peace or happiness or blessing or any other thing. It's not the Lord doing us good. It's not ten shekels and a change of clothing. It's not an easy way in a place of our own. So let's be done with using God for our own ends. Let's be done with serving God for stuff. Let's be done with pragmatism and doing what's right in our own eyes and following worldly wisdom, following what works, instead of listening to what God tells us to do. And serve Him because He is God and there is no other. The purpose of worship is the one we worship. The author of Judges keeps reminding his readers throughout this book and in this story that everyone is doing what was right in their own eyes because there's no king in Israel. We see that in verse 6. In those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. We see it in verse 18 and verse 1. In those days there was no king in Israel. And the author's hope, his expectation was when the king came, people would act right. When the king came, all this pragmatism, sin would be dealt with. He was hoping in the promise of a king. And Saul came... You know, it kind of got better. He was all right until he went crazy. David came and things were pretty good, except for a few.
few, you know, few issues. Solomon came, and again, things were good for a little while until the very end. And then the kings fell into pragmatism, idolatry, and sin. And apart from a few exceptions, it was even worse than the time of Judges. This earnest hope and promise that the king would fix the issue failed, at least for a time. While we may feel some kinship with the Israelites in the time of the Judges, with a lack of guidance and leadership, that shouldn't be the case, at least not fully and truly. Brothers and sisters, there is a king in Israel. A king who rejects pragmatism and using God as a means to an end. A king who prayed in the face of profound suffering, as we've already said, not as I will, but as you will. A prayer that Micah and the Levite and the Danites would never pray. A king who calls us to a hard path, a difficult path, a a narrow path, but the path to him. A path of denying our desires, our wants, our aspirations, our ends, and taking up our cross and following after him. We take this path because at the end of it is the king. One of my favorite passages in all the Bible comes in Hebrews. It's in chapter 13, verses 11 through 14. The author's talking there. He says, the bodies of the animals whose blood is brought into the holy places by the high priest as a sacrifice for sin are burned outside the camp. So Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. Therefore, let us go to him outside the camp. I love that language. Therefore, let us go to him. Bear the reproach he endured. For here we have no city, but we seek the city that is to come. Let's go to him, not to whatever we want, but to our Lord, to our King, a King who's worthy, a King who loves us, a King who will do us good, a King who will give us honor and prestige, a King who, a king who will give us a home, a King who invites us to come and cast ourselves at His feet and receive redemption and adoption and love and riches of grace and every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places Not in and of themselves, but in Him, because He will give us Himself. The story ends with Micah robbed of all of his idols and silver and the Levite. Rather than the Lord doing him good, Micah is left defeated, humiliated, and empty. And such is the end of using God as a means to our own ends. Such is the end of pragmatism. But it's not the end of following our king. It's not the end of what God calls us to do. His ways lead to life. I remember reading a preacher or author saying something along the lines of, you come to Jesus for joy and you won't get it. You come to Jesus for peace and you won't get it. You come to Jesus for forgiveness and you won't get it. But you come to, Je- uh, you come to Jesus to go to heaven when you die and you won't get it. But if you come to Jesus for Jesus... You'll get him and all the rest too. Brothers and sisters, let's be done with following in Micah's path, the Levite's path, the Danite's path. Be done with seeking our own ends. And even worse, taking God's name in our mouths 
and using him as a vending machine to get what we really want. Let's reject pragmatism and our own desires and say to our Lord, Lord, this is what I want, this is what I envision, and yet not as I will, but as you will, because you are God and worthy of my life and service and devotion. Let's do the hard things the Lord has called us to in his way, and in that, find the joy that he provides. Will you pray with me as we seek to ask him to do this in our heart? Father in heaven, Lord, we thank you for this story and the example it gives us. Lord, we pray that you would help us to take it to heart. Lord, that we might not use you, that we might not really and truly worship other things and only see you as a way to get those. But Lord, may we worship you in spirit and in truth, Lord. May we delight in you. May you be our heart's earnest desire. Lord, cleanse us from pragmatism, from seeking the, the most expedient way to do what we want to do. Instead, help us to learn from you, to hear your commands and hear your laws and your principles and know that that is the right way to go. And Lord, focus our eyes on our King who loves us and is for us and who has given us himself. Lord, may we delight in him. Pray that you bless us and be with us and help us to do all these things by your Holy Spirit's power. In Christ's name, amen. Thank you.